1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie.
2: So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Sorry for interrupting. This is Dave, content director on HistoryExtra.com.
2: I just wanted to mention that we've produced an exclusive eight-part podcast series called The Princes in the Tower, a Medieval Murder Mystery.
0: It contains kind of everything you want in a mystery, doesn't it?
4: It's kind of a fairy tale. There's there's an element of the Brothers Grimm to it. It's the story of a a downfall of of a royal family, the House of York, It's the uh, fall of a a young, innocent king full of promise.
0: It's got potentially gruesome murder. It's got, you know,
3: that kind of heartstring-pulling element of the fate of children. That is the irony. You know, you needed to be a ruthless man, really, to be an effective king.
4: Obviously, no, the princess in the tower is the great mystery of the medieval age.
3: We
2: ran the first episode on our podcast feed on Tuesday, the 6th of October. And you can find the rest of the series on our website at historyextra.com forward slash princes. Now, you'll have to register to listen in, and registration options may differ by territory. But once you're in, you'll be able to listen ad-free and to access a wealth of other great content about the princes in the tower, medieval and Tudor history, and all other aspects of history as well. So do please head over to historyextra.com forward slash princes to check that out. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy it.
0: the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's interview is with Andrew Bayliss, who's a senior lecturer in Greek history at the University of Birmingham. Andrew is also the author of a new book on the history of Sparta, and has also written the cover feature of our November issue on the Battle of Thermopylae. In today's discussion, with our editor Rob Attar, Andrew explores some of the big questions surrounding the Greek city-state and the legends associated with it.
4: So, Andrew, I wonder if we, we could start off with a fairly basic question, but whereabouts was Sparta, and at what point did it become a leading power in ancient Greece?
2: Okay, so Sparta, well, obviously it's in mainland Greece. Uh, it's in the southern part of mainland Greece uh, called the Peloponnese. Uh, and Sparta became genuinely a serious power in the ancient Greek world in the middle of the 6th century BCE. That's the moment where it really started to kick off for Sparta.
4: One thing that I suppose everyone knows about Sparta is that it was a major military power. What do you think made the Spartans such fearsome warriors? For me, it's
2: um, it's a combination of factors, but I think the number one factor is, is the training system. Uh, they, every single Spartan citizen had to go through the same upbringing. So it wasn't the case that the primary sources make it clear that fathers couldn't raise their children as they wanted, that they had to all go through that system. And that system was not just brutal, it was a system that was designed to make Spartans follow the rules, but also it was, it was very strong in terms of discipline. So those are the sort of factors that I think the modern military is imposing on people, order, rule following, and just the, the likelihood that in combat things are going, to, are going to go wrong. So you need people who are going to be able to handle that when things go wrong.
4: Do we know why Sparta decided to create a society like this and to emphasise the military aspect more than other Greek city-states did?
2: We'd like to think we know, but uh, this uh, this is one of those huge debates in modern scholarship on Sparta. So the ancient sources paint it as all to do with the helots, Uh, The Spartans conquered the Helots, they then needed to uh, secure control of the Helots. So the idea that's presented in our primary sources is that the Spartans sort of turned themselves into this militarized state to control the Helots. The reality is, is that they probably had been in control of the Helots for the best part of a century before they started behaving in this sort of militarized kind of way. So it doesn't work in terms of chronology. So either there was some sort of crisis that we don't know about, or it was something else that made it happen. My my feeling on this is that at some point in time, the Spartans effectively chose uh, to form what you could call a a we group uh, and that that was them and that everyone else was an outsider and that once they'd done that, they then instituted this training system so that they could trust that everyone was one of them, so to speak.
4: Now, the battle for which Sparta is best known is, of course, Thermopylae in 480 BC. And actually, you've written about that for the latest issue of BBC History magazine, So I wonder if you could briefly describe the key events of that battle and also maybe explain how accurate the legend that we have of it is.
2: Okay, so, all right, well, if we've got five hours, I can really go for it. But if we've got a few minutes, I'll stick to the basics. So in the latter part of the 6th century, early part of the 5th century, the the Greeks came... Uh, sort of into a position where they were next to be conquered by the Persians as they moved further and further west. They conquered the Greeks of Asia Minor in the uh, in the later part of the sixth century that had brought them into contact with the Athenians in mainland Greece. Um, and in 481 BCE, Xerxes put together a massive invading force to conquer Greece, as the Greek sources it. Now, Herodotus says there were two and a half million men in Xerxes' army, but modern estimates are more like 100,000 to 300,000. And that's why we end up with the story of Thermopylae because the Greeks needed to repel Xerxes' invasion. And because they were massively outnumbered by Xerxes, the strategy was to try and block his forces where it would be possible to reduce the uh, the danger of his numbers. So Earlier in 480 BCE, they tried to block his forces in northern Greece, in Thessaly, but they'd been warned by the locals that their position would be too easily surrounded. So the force withdrew and then they went to plan B, which was to stop him at Thermopylae. So that's how we get to Thermopylae. Um, And I think... Uh, The legendary nature then happens once we actually get to the story of the Greeks trying to stop uh, Xerxes at Thermopylae, because when they'd earlier tried to stop him in northern Greece, uh, there'd been 10,000 Greeks foot soldiers in the army. But at Thermopylae, there's a much smaller number. There's only 300 Spartans plus their Helots, and maybe some of the Perioikoi, and around 6,000 or so other Greeks. And the reason their forces were much smaller was because it coincided with the Olympic Games, when the Greeks had a truce, and the month of Carnea, when most of the Peloponnesian Greeks, including the Spartans, had a very strict truce. So they, in theory, no Spartans should have been able to be fighting at Thermopylae, because it would have been sacrilegious for them to do so. But so the 300 who went may have been men who were prepared to die because they were actually, they already knew that they were offending the gods by even being there. So that's where some of the legend comes from. It's such a smaller number of men against Xerxes' massive host. Uh, Putting it quickly, they held Xerxes' forces off for two days of solid fighting uh, and then the same problem they had in uh, in northern Greece manifested itself. There was a way their position could be surrounded, and Xerxes was informed of this by a local Greek named Ephialtes. He sent his best troops to circumvent the Greek position. When Leonidas, the Spartan king, learned that this was going to happen, uh, he dismissed most of his troops uh, to uh, to go home safely and he ordered his own men to stay behind so they could basically hold off Xerxes' forces as long as they could so that the uh, the, the, the other troops could withdraw. And the, we always talk about the Spartans, but the Thespians and uh, some men from Thebes also remained behind on the last day and fought with them. So we always remember the 300 Spartans, but actually there were some other guys who sacrificed themselves as well. Uh, and on that last day they they fought on both fronts uh, and and no no one was left alive at the end they they sacrificed themselves to hold Xerxes up long enough that those other men could withdraw and then ultimately fight on another day and and defeat the persians so that's that's thermopylae in in a nutshell
4: <laughs> so it's, it's a story that lots of people know particularly i suppose for the film 300 But other than being an incredible story and an incredible instance of bravery, how significant was the Spartan action at Thermopylae?
2: Well, it's a loss, and I always always tell my students that, and whenever anyone asks me about Thermopylae, you can't get past that. It is a defeat. And if it was intended to do more than just delay Xerxes for a couple of days, it is actually a disaster because they didn't hold him up for very long at all if it was designed to just delay for a little bit and inspire other Greeks, then it would have been significant. And later sources like Diodorus actually say that Thermopylae was more important than the later victories over the Persians because of the inspiration factor, in that uh, such a small number of men had killed tens of thousands of Persians. They had humiliated Xerxes, according to the way it's presented, and that afterwards the Greeks remembered this and they were inspired to fight on more bravely against the Persians. And Diodorus also says that Xerxes and his men remembered it as well and they'd remembered how scary just 300 Spartans were with their allies and that this was in the back of their mind when they were fighting against Greeks later on and they knew that really they were in trouble. So it's significant, but it's not as significant as, say, popular films might make it out to be.
4: And do we know much more about Leonidas beyond the legend of 300 and beyond the battle? Well, Herodotus provides a fair
2: bit of detail about his family, but the reality is he'd only recently become Spartan king. His he was the um, he was the third son, so there was no there was no great likelihood that he would become king. His his oldest brother had ruled for a long time. There was another brother between them, but he'd essentially got the hump when he didn't get to be king of Sparta. So he asked to be able to form a colony somewhere else and left Sparta altogether. And when Cleomenes died and Dorius was no longer available, Leonidas became king. So there's not an elaborate backstory to his life because he was an unexpected ruler. We know more about his uh, wife, who was also his niece, uh, Gorgo, uh, because uh, there's lots of stories about Gorgo and her relationship with her father Cleomenes, because Cleomenes conducted affairs of state, according to Rodotus, with an eight or nine-year-old Gorgo in the room with him. Uh, and so there's a wonderful moment where she um, she tells uh, her father what to do when a foreigner's trying to bribe him. And eventually she shouts out, Daddy, you should get rid of the foreigner. He's going to corrupt you. And, and her father, the king, says, you're right, and stands up and walks out of the room. So there's lots of stories about Gorgo. And it has been suggested that Gorgo might have been one of Herodotus's sources, that he might have actually met Gorgo when he went to Sparta. So some of the Leonidas information might be coming from Gorgo. But no, we don't know a huge amount about him. It would be good to know more, and a lot of his best lines, like the uh, "Will dine in, in Hades" or when Xerxes demanded their arms, he supposedly replied, "Come and get them." They actually come from much later sources, so they're they're, they're deemed unreliable. So you know, he's a legendary figure, and there's that lack of reliable source material to to fill in the gaps.
4: So as you said, Thermopylae, despite the heroism, was actually a defeat. Are there any battles that you would point to as being the most significant Spartan victories? I think if I were to
2: pick out one, it would have to be the Battle of Plataea the following summer because uh, that is the largest Spartan army you'll ever see in the field. They sent 5,000 Spartan citizens. They had 5,000 of the Perioikoi, who were the people who, free people who lived around them. And according to Herodotus, the suspiciously round number of 35,000 helots, seven for each Spartan citizen. And he says they were armed for war rather than just carrying armour for their masters. So that's a massive Spartan army. And the way Herodotus describes the fighting against the Persians and their Greek allies, because we often forget about that, the northern Greeks actually fought against the Greeks on Xerxes' side the following summer, Herodotus describes it really as the Spartans and the citizens of uh, the nearest city to Jaea in from southern Greece were pretty much fighting against the Persians on their own, and the other Greeks were fighting more against the uh, the, the, the Greek allies of Xerxes, and they wipe out um, the the forces led by uh, Xerxes' nephew Mardonius. And so, if there's one victory, that's the one because it was the battle that really finally ended. Persian hopes of uh, of conquering Greece and it ended Xerxes invasion so that's that's their big victory
4: and now moving on to Spartan society I suppose another thing that Spartans are known for is their tough austere lifestyle which in fact gives us the use of the word Spartan today how far would you say that's accurate and could you give us any examples of this harshness in practice okay it's
2: not as accurate as we would like it to be but i can i can give you uh, examples of of the harshness of their lifestyle uh, i mentioned the the training earlier uh, that is described by Plato as uh, a systematic training in the endurance of pain. Uh, and so, uh, so Spartan boys were beaten a lot, and, and I don't mean they were beaten with a cane uh, or the back of a hand. They were, they were flogged with whips for when, when they did the wrong thing. So, uh, and this is a, a very long-running training system. It starts when they're seven and goes through into early adulthood. So they would have been beaten a lot. Uh, the austerity of their lifestyle is obvious in the fact that they don't circulate gold and silver coinage and they're not meant to be spending money on on lavish goods uh, although there is a there is a caveat to that is that there seems to have been a very um a complicated game being played in Sparta, there was the appearance of austerity and what actually happened behind closed doors because our sources make it clear that actually what happened behind a, behind a Spartan's door was his own business. So they could have actually had a lot a lot of luxury items indoors. It's just no one was actually meant to see it. Uh, they have a communal lifestyle in a sense that each night Spartan citizens are expected to dine with their fellow citizens in, in mess groups. So there's not meant to be... Uh, a massive um, sort of private life in the evening. It's it's a much more public private life, for want of a better way of putting it. Um... I'm just trying to think of other aspects of austerity, and that they um, there's a uniformity of uh, of appearance as well. They're meant to meant to all have their hair long. They're meant to shave their moustaches at the beginning of each year. Uh, so uh, so they, they're sort of they're required to follow the rules, and they're even supposed to ask permission to leave Sparta. So uh, so various sources say that men of military age weren't allowed to leave Sparta unless they had permission from the state to do so, which makes it sound Like it's quite a, certainly compared to our society, a closed society in that way. But it's not necessarily as closed or as austere as the primary sources paint it. And there is lots of obvious um, evidence of wealth and luxury that's, I, would, I hesitate even to say hidden. It's it's there, but it's not talked about. So uh, so Spartans were big on horse breeding, and that's an obvious way in which richer Spartans could really uh, spend money uh, because breeding horses is 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 never been a cheap thing. Uh, so and certainly breeding race horses mm-hmm. has never been a cheap thing. And Spartans, some Spartans are very very uh, prominent in the record for that. There's a there's a strong tradition of Spartans winning the four horse chariot race at the Olympic Games, which is the big event and you need to be very, very wealthy indeed to produce a team of four quality horses that are going to beat four horses from anywhere else in the Greek speaking world. So so there's luxury in Sparta. It's just not luxury in the way that other Greeks were doing things uniformly, for want of a better way of putting it.
4: And a lot of what we've talked about so far relates to Spartan men, but what do we know about Spartan women and their place in a very militarized society?
2: We know a lot about Spartan women, which is one of the reasons why Sparta is, is such a fascinating topic for me as a researcher, but also for me as a teacher. And that I every year I have students who want to know more about Spartan women. And I almost every year have a, an undergraduate dissertation student who wants to do something on Spartan women, because we have so much more source material, relatively speaking. Uh, we have... Uh, preserved 39 or 40 sayings by Spartan women. And there's there's nothing comparable to that, say, from Athenian women. And most of our primary sources actually come from, from Athens. It's because Spartan women were worthy. Uh, and most of their sayings were, when you think about their place in Spartan society, most of their sayings that have been preserved for us are telling men what to do uh, telling their sons what to do, telling their brothers what to do, uh, telling their husbands what to do, uh, reinforcing Spartan values uh, and they were also visible as well. so uh, I said I've already mentioned about the sort of the training of boys. Spartan girls were trained as well they uh, they were required to do athletics, Um, And our primary sources indicate that that was so that they would be big and strong, and would therefore grow up to be healthier and therefore able to produce uh, healthier, stronger sons was the the thought process there. And when they were doing exercises they were visible in a way that uh, wasn't just that they were outside they were actually scantily clad so uh, the stereotype of other greek women is that at the time was that they were they were veiled when they were outside whereas spartan girls had short dresses and were known by the athenians as thigh flashers uh, and there's a really strong emphasis on the fact that they had long flowing hair when they were young and outside and it's sort of seemed to be a, a really obvious uh, opposite to, uh, to places like Athens, where, where women were very, very carefully covered and were not expected to be seen outside and certainly weren't expected to be heard, which is one of the reasons why the story of Gorgo telling her father off when she was eight or nine years old is so striking, because there would be no comparable stories of, of an Athenian official uh, being told what to do by his daughter. That just would have been unthinkable.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: Uh, I always have to warn my students eventually that I don't admire the Spartans beyond a certain level because their society is a horrible one. Yes, they fight on the right side of Thermopylae, but too often they were prepared to trample on the rights of everyone else to get what they wanted.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate
3: Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p.com slash history extra.
1: Life is a highway,
2: and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
3: of a detour.
4: So one of the most uncomfortable aspects of Spartan society that I suppose we should discuss is the practice of pederasty, relationships between Spartan men and young boys. What was the importance of this practice to the Spartans, and were there any concerns at the time about it? Yeah, pederasty is a common
2: practice in the ancient Greek world, and it was clearly a practice, while being common, that had controversy about it. So uh, it's um, it's something that's debated and discussed in primary sources about Sparta, but also about other parts of the Greek world. So um, it's If you think about what's going on there, the primary sources report this relationship between uh, uh, an adolescent boy and an older man as a form of education. That's what Xenophon, who wrote A Constitution of the Spartans, says straight up. He talks about it in the context he uses the word education. But he's a bit vague about what actually happens in that education process, and that tells you already there's something that people are uncomfortable about here. Uh, It clearly had a mentoring process. Uh, One of our later sources, Plutarch, says that when a boy was fighting and cried out in an undignified fashion, the Spartan officials punished his older mentor because he hadn't followed the rules properly. So clearly it was about teaching them how to do things, but there was obviously a sense of some sort of sexual um, activity going on in Sparta and elsewhere in the ancient Greek world uh, because Xenophon goes out of his Way to tell you that it wasn't sexual in Sparta. And he says that it it, it definitely wasn't sexual. And he stresses it so much that you start to doubt that he might be telling you the truth there. And the obvious counter-argument is Plato, when discussing his ideal society, says when it comes to sex, Sparta is not our role model. Uh, And it's so obvious that Plato, who was very uncomfortable with the idea of, uh, of what we would see as pedophilia, was uh, was not the right thing to do. Uh, but it was actually s- comparatively normal in the ancient Greek world. Xenophon, when discussing this, says Sparta's not like Elis, also in southern Greece, or Thebes in central Greece, where sex between men and boys was normal. Uh, so uh, there was clearly some parts of Greece where it was more acceptable than in others, and that's why Xenophon's trying to stress that it wasn't sexual there.
4: And actually, in general, how typical or atypical was Sparta of the Greek societies of the time? So uh,
2: if you read a book published in the 1980s or earlier, it would say totally different. Uh, and in the last 30 years, uh, modern scholarship is, is is diminishing the gap between Sparta and the rest of the Greek world quite significantly. So many aspects of Spartan society can look very odd when you start off looking at them but the more sort of dig into there the deeper you get into the primary sources and the more carefully you ask the questions the more you can see sparta is not as abnormal as it's often presented and it comes down to how you frame your questions in many ways because so many of the sources for ancient greece come from athens that you get a, its really easy to compare a place like Sparta to Athens and say, "Oh, that's different to Athens." Oh, that's different to Athens. Oh, that's different to Athens. Therefore, it's really different. But if you actually start comparing Sparta to other parts of the Peloponnese central Greek cities, uh, and other aspects of different city states, you then find, well, actually, so many aspects of Spartan society aren't near as different as you think they might be. And one of the obvious ones is is politics. Athens is a democracy. Sparta is an oligarchy with two kings. Clearly, it's very, very different. But there were loads of oligarchies in the ancient Greek world. Athens was not not the norm. Uh, When Athens developed into a democracy to begin with, it was the exception. Uh, So so it it comes down to your frame of reference. So if you asked me on a a sliding scale, uh, I'd say Sparta was quite different, but not near as different as it's often been
4: portrayed. And then on a related note, what kind of relations did Sparta have with the other Greek city-states?
2: It depended who they were. So, uh, so Sparta was the head of an alliance system which incorporated most of the Peloponnese, uh, which is often referred to in uh, in modern uh, writings as the Peloponnesian League but has also been referred to as the Spartan Alliance, which is a term I actually prefer because it reflects the fact that all of those city-states were allied to Sparta. So Sparta had good relations with most of the Peloponnesian states for most of the period between the middle of the 6th century through to the uh, sort of early 4th century. Uh, but they frequently had very hostile relations with with Athens. Uh, An exception to that rule was during the the Persian invasions when they basically agreed to fight together against the Persians. Uh, So it depended in many ways on how far away you were from Sparta. If you were close, you were under their thumb but kind of had a good relationship with them. The further away you were, the more likely they were to not be interested in what you were doing until they felt that you were a threat, which Athens always was throughout the classical period. So Sparta has normal diplomatic relations with other Greek city-states. They they send ambassadors like other Greek city-states do. They receive ambassadors like other Greek city-states do. They compete at the big international games like other Greek city-states do. They're not closed off in a, they won't play with the other Greeks, but they can be, They can be uh, quite blunt when they are hostile. And their their communication style doesn't go down very well outside of of Sparta as well. They have a reputation for a a brevity of speech, which isn't just them speaking briefly themselves. It's expecting that others will speak briefly as well. So there's a series of Spartan sayings where they're quite rude to ambassadors from other Greek city-states for talking too long. Uh, I always joke and say the Spartans would have hated me because I don't shut up, Uh, and they they would have wanted me to shut up. So so they they could be very rude when they wanted to be.
4: When we were talking about Thermopylae, you discussed the role of the helots. I'd be interested to know how they fitted into Spartan society.
2: Okay, so helots are absolutely fundamental to Spartan society. Uh, Putting it bluntly, the Spartan lifestyle could not happen without the helots because spartans couldn't devote themselves to uh, physical exercise they couldn't have a culture where they weren't expected to have a job if they didn't have the slaves to do the work for them. So uh, they, they are the fundamental basis of Spartan society. They've been referred to by uh, one modern scholar as the elementary canal of Spartan society. Uh, I referred to the Spartans as being like parasites uh, living off the labour of the helots. Uh, so they are fundamental. Uh, they also massively outnumber their masters. So modern estimates are 75%. 5,000 to say 115, 120,000 Helots laboring for 6,000, 7,000, 8,000 Spartan masters. So they are potentially a massive threat to their Spartan masters as well. So uh, so that's where the idea comes up that the Spartans sort of turned inwards to monitor themselves and and their Helot population rather than outwards in a in a conquering kind of way. So the Spartans can't do without them, but they also seem to be scared of them. So uh, one of the potential reasons for the reputation the Spartans developed for being cautious about uh, going on overseas campaigns is because they might have been worried about to having leaving their Helots behind. Uh, And the idea that they took 35,000 helots to the Battle of Plataea, uh, that could well have been almost or oh, sort of three quarters of the adult male population of Helots. So it might have almost been the case that they took them with them to fight with them, but also so they didn't leave them behind uh, to cause trouble. And it's one the reason I always want to talk about Helots when I'm talking about Sparta is because they are the people who are so frequently left out of the popular culture versions of Sparta too. And the, and the worshippers of Sparta in a benign sense, tend to overlook them. And the more dodgy admirers of Sparta are a little probably too keen on the helots as well. So there was a uh, a quite blunt uh, policy document produced un- in the 1940s in-, in Nazi Germany that said the-, the Germans would have the status of the Spartan citizens. Uh, the um, some of the Eastern Europeans would have the status of the Perioikoi, and the Russians would be the Helots. Uh, and and it, you can see where they were going with that one there. Uh, so um, So you can't sort of overlook the Helots much as people often try to.
4: And considering, as you mentioned, they had this superiority in numbers, did the Helots ever try and rebel or overthrow their masters?
2: They did. There are two well-known rebellions by the Messenian population. One of them was in the middle of the seventh century, uh, and it's the context of one of the rare Spartan sources we have: is war poetry written by a man named Tateus, and it's all about inspiring the Spartans to fight bravely. Uh, and this was to fight bravely against the Helots who were rebelling against them. And in the middle of the fifth century, four uh, sixties, four six five through to four. Five, five. There was a massive rebellion by the helots after a big earthquake struck Sparta. So uh, they they could rise up on occasions, which would explain some of the more ugly. Um, uh, sources we have for Sparta that talk about the treatment of the helots, uh, and and one of the most brutal uh, Spartan practices is the so-called cryptea, uh, which is sort of, you could translate as the secret thing, or sometimes it gets translated as the secret service. And, and the worst version of that in our primary sources says young Spartan men were given a knife, uh, and supplies, and they were dispatched down into the countryside. And their job was to roam around at night and kill any helot who was out and about. And on other occasions, they would go through the fields during the daytime, and they'd pick out the biggest, uh, most threatening looking helot and kill him. Uh, so it was a, a brutal rite of passage for young men, but it was also a way of terrorising the helots. And, uh, and you could characterise the Spartan treatment of helots as an example of state terror uh, because of how how institutionalised it was.
4: Taking the story on a little bit, what would you see as the end point of the Spartan heyday and how did that come about?
2: All right. I end, well, essentially the book that I wrote, I said it was it was sort of looking at the period up until 370 or thereabouts. And when I teach about Sparta, I end at 370. And that uh, coincides with two great events. One of them is the Battle of Leuctra in 371, where the Spartans are defeated by the Thebans. And that's, that's the moment when... Any aura or mystique that the Spartan army had is gone because of the manner of that defeat. It's a disastrous defeat. Uh, They literally run away in battle. Uh, The next day, the Spartan king, Agesilaus, has to suspend the laws about cowards because he would have basically had to make almost the entire Spartan citizen population cowards uh, because they'd run away in battle. And the following summer, the Thebans swept into the Peloponnese and they freed uh the Mycenaeans from Spartan rule. And that basically it, it halved the size of the Spartan state and it took away a huge chunk of their slave population, and it basically ended Spartan power. Uh, so that's that's the point I choose. How that happened is Not just military defeat, it's a steep decline in numbers of Spartan citizens, which commenced in the fifth century and rapidly accelerated up until that point in time. So at the time of the Battle of Thermopylae, Herodotus says there were 8,000 Spartan citizens. There might have been a bit fewer than that. But by the time you get to the Battle of Lutra, there's only 1,500. Uh, so, so that loss of citizen numbers more than anything else is, is, is responsible for the decline of Sparta. Aristotle says Sparta perished due to, a, due to small numbers of men. Uh, and in and, a and And it's quite obvious that that is the most significant factor. Why that came about is a more complicated question, but but the sheer number of Spartans just dropped so dramatically that they were not able to to be the military threat they had once been.
4: And then taking the story on to more recent times, I'm quite interested in your thoughts on the legacy of Sparta and how it's been co-opted by such a broad range of groups, ranging from sports teams to Nazi Germany. Why does Sparta mean... So many different things to so many different people.
2: I think because it's because there's so many levels to the story of the Spartans, and and I think in terms of sports teams calling themselves the Spartans and just playing films about the Battle of Thermopylae, it's a fantastic story. Three hundred men sacrifice themselves for the freedom of others. It's such a a powerful story. Then the society that produced that that has such a strong emphasis on obedience and teamwork and all of that, it works so well for sport uh, that it's, its it just makes perfect sense to do that. And I think it's a story that also appeals to, to young men as well in that way. I mean, I first read about the Spartans when I was 12 years old and I was just awestruck by these guys and I didn't see any of the negatives uh, and, and, and just sort of overlooked that. So I think if you're prepared to overlook the negatives, you've just got this wonderful sort of role model for, uh, for for sporting prowess. Uh, when it comes to the dark side of Sparta, I think there's so much going on there that appeals to anyone with an authoritarian view. So Spartan eugenic practices were something that appealed to Hitler. Uh, and then you combine that with that uh, military prowess, then it's working quite Quite nicely as as a role model in that way uh, for other other societies that have admired Sparta, it's different things. So for in the Soviet era, Sparta looked like a proto communist society where they had divided up the land allegedly into equal plots uh, and everyone was equal. Yet they were all citizens who were prepared to uh, defend Spartan territory, and that was a model that appealed to people within the Soviet Union as well as in a and. Part of that came also from the identification of the West with the, uh, with the Athenians, a, an imperialistic maritime power. You can see where where, people, where scholars in America and in Britain could identify with Athens as a democratic state with a massive fleet, uh, whereas Sparta was this sort of backward seeming land based economy which could easily be uh, be identified with the soviet uh, union as well so so it, it depends on the perspective that people are coming from uh, i always have to warn my students eventually that i don't admire the spartans beyond a certain level because their society is a horrible one, uh, and yes, they fight on the right side of Thermopylae. But too often they were prepared to trample on the rights of everyone else to get what they wanted. So it's not a—I don't have a boy crush on the Spartans by any means. Uh, they're a fascinating society, but they're a—they're an ugly society once you start to dig in into the into what's really going on there.
4: And if one was to visit ancient Greece now and looking for traces of Spartan society. How much is there to see? It's uh, it's I I love the site and the
2: the modern town of Sparta, uh, but it's not the best preserved ancient Greek city by any means, which uh, which is quite. Um, Quite interesting when you think about the fact that uh, Thucydides, writing towards the end of the 5th century, said that in future years, if only the foundations of the two cities survived, no one would ever believe that Sparta was as powerful as it was and everyone would think that Athens was twice as powerful as it was. And he was right uh, because when you go to Athens, you see the Parthenon, you see the Acropolis, you see all these temples everywhere and you just think, wow, this city-state was amazing. You go to Sparta... And the remains are very meagre, and and the, the foundations of the temples are remarkably small compared to Athens. So Sparta, Sparta was not a uh, dramatic urban landscape. Sparta was really a collection of villages that got lumped together to form a to form a, an urban centre. Uh, but it wasn't. It, architecture wasn't their thing. Art wasn't their thing. So so you don't see. Uh, an amazing set of um well preserved buildings its bits of bits of masonry here and there now the, the 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 site at Sparty, they've done wonders with what they have uh but there's a limit there and when you go to the i love the Sparty museum it's got some wonderful spartan artifacts there but again this uh, the idea that the spartans didn't do manual labor and that the perioikoi and the helots did the manual labor means that uh, from the period that you want to know about when at the period of Sparta's greatness, there isn't a huge amount of artifacts there. But when you go around various museums around Greece, you do see other bits of things that relate to Sparta. And probably my my two favorites are the Spartan shield that you can see in the Agora Museum in Athens, which was taken from Spartans who surrendered on the island of uh, Sphateria, the so-called Battle of Pylos in 425 BCE, the Athenians captured Spartans and they dedicated their shields to the gods. And this shield has inscribed on it, taken from the Spartans at Pylos. And the Athenians were so proud of the fact that the Spartans had surrendered to them. And my other favourite Sparta-related artefacts are the arrowheads that they found at the Battle of Thermopylae that you can see in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. So if you know where to go, you can find bits of things relating to Sparta all throughout Greece.
0: That was Andrew Baylis. His book, which is simply called The Spartans, is out now, published by Oxford University Press. And as I mentioned, his article on the Battle of Thermopylae is the cover feature in the November issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes articles on medieval science, the world's first police women, the Franco-Prussian War and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good retailers now. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend events.